Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello, passionate listeners. Welcome to Passion Harvest, where we aim to help you live a passionate life. I have a very exciting guest today on the show. And if you like this episode, please subscribe. We've got some incredible guests coming. But today we have a very special one. Her name is Ginny Jabonski. Following a lengthy illness and near-death experience, Ginny set out on an extraordinary healing and spiritual quest. Ginny quickly recognized that she had begun to express remarkable intuitive abilities. Further, she became aware of hundreds of past lives in which she was a shaman, wisdom carrier and healer in multiple cultures and on every continent. Over the years, Ginny has been guided to facilitate healing for both people and animals who have experienced trauma. Ginny travels the United States sharing her remarkable experiences. This is her story and this is her passion. Ginny, I'm so honoured and grateful to have you on Passion Harvest today. Thank Welcome. you. <laughs> well, I've, I mean, I, I've obviously done my research and, you know, you're just such an incredible woman. And I guess I'd like to get started wherever you want to, but I'm really interested in your STE or spiritually transformative experiences prior to your NDE near-death experience for those that are listening that don't know what I'm abbreviating, um, that sort of is the start of your journey. Well, truthfully, I did have an NDE when I was three months old. Oh, okay. That I was not previously aware of until I went on a very extensive healing journey and did a lot of hypnotic regression and um, trauma work. And it came out during a session and I was quite distressed. And if I may share that quickly, please share it. You can share anything you want to on Passion Harvest. (laughs) So I was born into a family that was not as fortunate as most. And um, it would not have, and was not, would not have been, and definitely was not a comfortable, um, dignified, loving situation. And when I was three months old, I recognized that I, I actually recognized it in the womb and I uh, was diagnosed with whooping cough and they had me packed in ice in a tent. My, I recall my mother telling me this when I was young, I just didn't know about the NDE piece. Um, they had me packed in ice in a tent. I had turned blue. They weren't very hopeful that I would survive. And in fact, I did cross over and I went to the creator and I can only describe it as um, a booming, loving energy. There was not a lot of light. It seemed very velvety and very embracing, a, a warm, loving embrace, but it felt very much larger than life. And the voice was very reassuring. And I went back and said, I, I can't do this life. You have no idea what I'm up against. It's worse than I ever thought. Oh. Um, 
you know, please don't make me do this. And he immediately said, no, you have to go back. There's something important you have to do. And I fought back and forth with him at least six or seven times, maybe more, very aggressively. And um, under the hypnotic regression in the recall, I was, I was quite distressed. And then afterward, I was able to heal quite a bit of that, being basically angry at God, angry at the Creator for sending me back from, from my perspective, for making me live out this um, experience. So when he did send me back, he said, I will make you stronger and you will survive. And it's funny because a lot of things that happened to me and a lot of things that I endured break most people. Um, you know, either we end up um, doing drugs, drinking alcohol, um, having inappropriate or harmful relationships. The list is as long as both of our arms in terms of what the options are when you're yeah. not handling trauma well. And so although I wouldn't say I was the nicest or kindest or most selfless person in the world, um, I certainly made it through and I was able to accomplish some good things. But in, I think it was 1996, I was in my early 30s. I was riding on the back of a motorcycle going about 85, 90 miles an hour, I'm sure. And I was holding on to the, uh, to the driver who was a friend of my husband and I had my hands clasped together and it felt as if someone just pulled one of my arms off of the motorcycle and I was sliding off the motorcycle with one of my arms, my right arm just flailing in the turbulence behind me and my head had turned around. I had a very large um, motorcycle helmet on. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't scream or ask for help because the driver wouldn't hear me. The, the motorcycle was, for, you know, in its day, a, a, you know, a fancy, expensive motorcycle, and it was making a lot of noise. Loud, yeah. And so my head had turned around, and I was looking at the windshield of a very large black sedan. And I basically said, that's where I'm going to die, and no, nobody will ever know what happened. And in that moment, what I can only describe as the hand of God came forward and propelled me with such force back onto the seat of the motorcycle and wrapped my right arm back around the driver. And when we got to our destination, I didn't say anything to the driver because I certainly didn't think he would believe me. But when I got home, I did tell my husband and we marveled at it for a while, but it certainly didn't cause me, you know, you did say that that's a spiritually transformative experience. And I always say it didn't transform me. I didn't go in search of God or religion or alternative anything. And, you know, I didn't go to a bookstore and try to figure out the meaning of life. I just sort of went on with my life. And then two years later, I was driving my car, uh, on the freeway, the 10 freeway in Los Angeles. And I was going about 85 miles an hour in the fast lane. It was a four lane freeway highway. It was in uh, San Bernardino County, just east of Los Angeles. And my husband called me on the phone and he told me 
that he needed a surgery. And my whole life I had been very hypersympathetic. And when he said that he needed surgery, I started passing out. And I dropped the phone. So I, I had the phone in my left hand and I dropped the phone and I noticed that my vision was closing in. And I looked to the right and there was the cab of a semi-truck. And in the next lane, in front of that semi-truck was another cab of another semi-truck and in the fourth lane also, or the third lane over, which would have been the first, the number one lane. Mm. And I could see that there was an off-ramp, but there was no way I could accelerate in front of all three of those trucks to get to the off-ramp. And my vision um, closed in and I slumped in the seat and I woke up roughly 20 minutes later in a parked in a McDonald's parking lot off of that very off ramp. And I picked up my phone and I called my husband and I explained what happened and I, I was hysterical. And he was in Los Angeles, which was a hundred miles away. He drove a hundred miles to pick me up, drove me into Los, left my car, drove me into Los Angeles, took me to our family physician, uh, an emergency visit. The doctor said, well, you're very sensitive. You probably just had a vasal vega episode and uh, there's nothing wrong with you that I can see. So just go home. So he then drove me a hundred miles back to my car. And again, we marveled for a while and said, gee, there must be something, some reason that you're alive. There must be something important that you have to do. And from time to time, I would tell my husband that I think there's something important I have to do. And I did not remember the near death when I was three months old, when the creator says, you have to go back. There's something important you have to do. And uh, so, so those were the two, what people call spiritually transformative experiences. Although sadly, I can say I wasn't very transformed by Well, look, first of all, I have to say thank you for being so open and honest and sharing, you know, your life's journey and experiences with us. Um, the child one is quite incredible as well to, you know, obviously it was under hypnotherapy, but to remember that experience and that traumatic experience. And even though you say you didn't learn from the STEs, it kind of gave you a, a wake up and a shake up in some way. It did. Um... It certainly made me think about my life and what I was doing with my life. And at that time, I worked in private international security. I worked for a um, former president's daughter and son-in-law um, who had a very strong uh, relationship with a family from the Middle East. And I, I had a great job and I, I felt that that was a purpose. I felt that I was doing something very good and I was very proud of myself and I excelled in that field and, and I had been quite strong um, physically and mentally and emotionally in order to endure the, the years of training it took to get the job. Mm -hmm. And uh, to be a woman, to work alongside all of these incredible former military, you know, Delta forces, army ranger, Navy SEALs, you know, from every branch of the military, men who stood at the front door of the White House, a woman who um, stood at Marine One, which is the helicopter that lands on the lawn of the White House, 
I worked with a man who carried the football. I mean, these were some highly respected, very accomplished people that I worked with. And we were, we took what we did very seriously. And, and I, I guess I felt that was the important thing I had to do at the time. And it obviously sounds like you loved your career as well. I did very much. I enjoyed it. It involved a lot of travel and staying in a lot of places I had never been. Um, I was brought up, you know, very simply, um, not, uh, I, I, I did not travel. I had not been exposed uh, culturally um, or really in any way. And it was, it was a beautiful experience. And not many people get to travel as extensively um, as I did. And of course, many people would say, well, that it's sort of a material thing, and it, but it exposed me to a lot. I yes. was able to Life experience. events and I was able to go to museums. I mean, I went to the Metropolitan in Boston. I, it was just beautiful. And as mm -hmm. I, and I, you know, I actually, I had majored in economics in school and I was, I didn't finish my degree, but I was well-educated and I enjoyed subjects such as art history. And I, I talked one of my uh, co-workers into going to the museum with me. I remember now just spontaneously in Boston and we were walking down um, the hallway and at each uh, portrait, I was saying to him, now the, um, the brush strokes and the, and the light that, that the artist is using yeah. are, remind me of this artist or that artist. And he would go up and read the, uh, the description and it would, I would have almost been able to write the description. So I, I was able to have a lot of experiences that I wouldn't have had normally. So. Hmm. Absolutely. It's incredible. And I mean, as we progress, we'll probably hear about this, but I just want to have a shout out to your husband because you often say in your talks what an incredible support he's been through your entire journey. Yes, and a lot of people said that from the beginning. I had a job where I traveled a lot, and now I travel a lot with work and just speaking, public speaking. And people say, well, you're married? How do you do that? And I say, if I couldn't, I wouldn't be married. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's just not my personality. I couldn't live with someone who didn't totally support me. And I am incredibly blessed that the universe gave me someone who would support me on my journey and who was willing to say, it doesn't matter to me what it costs. I want you to live. And that's what he did. And he supported my journey and my education and, and continues to support me. Yes, so big shout out to your husband. And what's his name, by the way? Todd. Todd. Hi, Todd. <laughs> um, and then I guess we'd probably progress to your um, the pain that you suffered and your pain medication. Right. So as I was working, when you work in private security, you're deployed for a minimum of 90 days. You cannot go home. And it's seven days a week, 14 to 16 hours a day, oh, wow. high threat. You're, you're being read threat assessments and risk assessments every morning when you show up to work. And I was a personal executive protection agent. So that meant I was assigned to a princess or uh, they were mostly all princesses, actually. The only domestic United States um, citizen that I ever protected was Margaret Whitman, who's now the CEO of Hewlett Packard. She, at the time, she was the CEO of eBay when I worked for her in San Jose, California. 
She's the only um, United States citizen I ever protected. But um, the princesses, that sounds exciting. Maybe not. <laughs> yes. And even more exciting for my husband was when the mail would come and it would be from Saudi Arabia and all the different princesses that I worked for would send me <laughs> cards or letters or gifts or that type of thing. And so oh. we saved some of the stamps and just as mementos, yeah. you know. But um, for me, having not uh, intended to be really in a military environment over many years, I didn't understand how much stress that would put on my body. And mm -hmm. I went through three years of training and I was three years into employment. And oftentimes I would be working three or four months. I'd come home two or three days, the phone would ring. I'd go back out because there weren't that many women doing what, what I was doing. And um, so I began to become fatigued. I began to um, not be able to hold my weapon as well. My shooting scores were declining. I wasn't running as fast. And, you know, you have to run so far so fast and do so many pull-ups and sit-ups, et cetera. And I wasn't running every day. I wasn't running the stairs. Um, you know, we would go to Coliseum or different stadiums in different towns and, and exercise. And that's what one of the things we did for fun. And I just couldn't do that anymore. And there would be times where I didn't exercise at all in, in a day or maybe even two days. And I would go and, and try and get on the treadmill and maybe I would run for a mile or two and I would just give up. So as soon as I had time off, I went to the doctor in Beverly Hills, <clears throat> a rheumatologist, and um, I said, please fix me. Please send me back to work. I, you know, I really want to go back to work. And he basically told me that he thought I, I was a typical type A personality who just burned out and needed a little time off. And well, that did not sit very well with me. Type A, yes, but quitter, no, and right. burnout, no. You know, that, no, that's not me. You don't know me. There's something wrong. Yeah. And as I was saying that, he wrote something down on a piece of paper and handed it to me. And I looked at it and it was a prescription for hydrocodone. And I literally dropped it on his desk. And I said, no, 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 no. I did not come here for drugs. I am not drug seeking. I came here for a diagnosis and a cure. How do I, how do I go back to work? Yeah. And how do I use my body? I, I need to be strong. And he pretty much... Um, thought that I was um, being irrational. And he pointed out the window of his office and said, 80% of LA is driving around on more medication than this. What's your problem? Oh, gosh. And I said, well, I have a concealed weapons permit and I don't want to lose it and I don't want to lose my job. So I would much rather just know what's wrong with me. And that went on for seven or eight years with multiple misdiagnosis and trying all of the medications that were not narcotic or opioid. Um, I think I, I did accept a prescription for narcotics, something like hydrocodone at a very low dose. But anytime I ever took it, it just made me tired. It didn't make the pain go away. So I really never refilled those prescriptions. Mm -hmm. Although I did from, you know, two, three, four times, maybe in seven years, take one just so that I could maybe get to sleep or something, but I, I never regularly refilled the prescriptions. And um, about eight or nine years in, I was standing in his office and he handed me a fentanyl lollipop. And he said, I really think that I can't continue to look for what is wrong with you. Uh, and this is your only hope. 
And so I drove home and showed my husband the fentanyl lollipop and he immediately got on the um, FD, I think it was FDA website. And he said, quote unquote, Ginny, you realize if you take this medication, your brain can forget to tell your lungs to breathe. My gosh. When he said that, I dro- we were in our bedroom and I just dropped on the floor and, and just wept. And I said, I have no choice. I'm in so much pain. I have such a short fuse. It's the, the trauma from being in pain is worse than the trauma from working, you know? Yeah. And it's they, very debilitating you know, pain. It was. It felt as if my bones were going to explode. So years later, somebody said, hey, had you ever been tested for Lyme disease? And it was the only thing I had not been tested for. And sure enough, because it had been um, untreated for so long, it turned into neurological Lyme. And so I'm still trying to figure out ways to bring my brain back, my memory. Um, oftentimes I have problems with vocabulary recall. I, I, I speak very simply now um, because I don't really have access to the intellect and the cognitive you know, processes and skill that I once had. The effects of Lyme disease are debilitating mm-hmm. and, and so varied. And it, it depended upon whether you had mononucleosis as a child, whether you had chickenpox as a child, there are different types of um, complications that, that one can have. And unless you go to a functional medical specialist, which of course I do now, I have all of the incredible doctors mm-hmm. now, um, but I didn't even know what that was in you know, 2000, 2005, 2007. We just thought medical doctors knew everything. You know, my husband has two degrees in science. Yeah. And so we just basically thought I was crazy and the doctors knew everything. So And that they couldn't find out what was wrong with you. No. No. So I guess this is leading up to your um NDE, really? And right. So at that time, uh, I began to take fentanyl. I began to take the fentanyl patch. And that is a very slippery slope. We all know now that fentanyl is an anesthetic and it masks the neural pathways that are carrying the signals that tell your brain that you're in pain. But what happens is your body is actually still in pain. Your neural pathways have just been masked. So what the brain does is say, ah, I'm brilliant. I know what to do. Let me make more super highways to send that information to the brain. Mm. So the brain really understands that we are in pain. And so the body is constantly making more neural pathways to send more pain signals. And you constantly have to up the dose. And I tried. I really held back over the four years. I really, frankly, because of what my husband said, I had a very healthy fear of that medication. Unfortunately, the doctor's solution to that was to prescribe what they called an additional medication for breakthrough pain. And this, and I don't know the, I only know the generic name for it, Dilaudid. So they gave me Dilaudid to take on the days where the fentanyl wasn't enough. And so I would take the Dilaudid. And in the beginning, it was 50 micrograms of fentanyl and two milligrams of Dilaudid. And then it was 75 micrograms of fentanyl and four milligrams of Dilaudid. And right before my near-death experience, my fentanyl was increased from 125 to 135 micrograms. 
And mind you, I weigh, I was five, I'm five two. And at the time I weighed 105 pounds. Oh, wow. And they upped the dose of the Dilaudid to eight milligrams. And I said to the doctor, gee, that's a lot of medicine for someone my size, don't you think? And the doctor said, Mrs. Jablonski, don't worry. I have surgeons and judges on more medication than this. And making, oh, wow, and making <laughs> such major decisions. Uh, yeah, adjudicating court cases that could potentially decide the rest of our lives, uh, operating on our children. That statement alone is what has uh, compelled me to travel across the country and speak out against the overprescription of opioids and the misuse of opioids and how there are alternatives and a different perspective of looking at pain, pain as emotional pain. I'm not saying that we all do not have, you know, there are many legitimate diseases. There are cancers that certainly come from environmental factors and, and ancestral, etc. But most of the medication that people take is because our emotions are trapped in our nervous system and it just hurts. And their answer is send you to the psychiatrist and give you psychotropic medicine, which then compounds all of the different side effects. And it's just a, just a merry-go-round and, and you just never seem to get off. Yeah, that's um, a great message. And it, I, I guess also the message is basically to question, you know, do your own research. You're, you're free to do your own research and question what the doctor say, says, and that's okay to do that. And I had no idea. I, mm. My husband and I both just looked at doctors as if they were God. They, doctors know everything. And certainly, if you were supposed to change your diet or think about something else, they never recommended it to me. As a holistic. No. Yeah, no. There, there was no mention of anything I could do in my life to change my lifestyle, to change my diet, to seek out alternative healing methods, even something as simple as acupuncture, there was never a recommendation. So unfortunately, um, four years then into, <coughs> pardon me, four years into the fentanyl, and um, I went to bed one night having a lot of pain. I took that eight milligram Dilaudid in addition to that 135 microgram fentanyl patch. And I woke up in a giant white space looking at a man that looked a lot like Jesus. Wow. And I thought to myself, well, it makes sense. You know, I'm, I'm on a lot of medication. I must be dead. I'm, I must be dead. And I thought, you know, I thought about my husband right away. Who will take care of my husband? What will happen to my husband? But I also thought, he'd probably be a lot better without me because Aww. he cared for me. He did everything for me. He really did. And um, unfortunately, a lot of people with Lyme and a lot of near-death experiencers, both their marriages don't last through those types of challenges. Yes, it's a common. Been, I've been very lucky. So I'm standing in front of Jesus. He <laughs> holds out his hand and he says, come with me. You've suffered enough. Your life is over. And I'm like, brilliant. This is great. I can't wait for this to be over. And so I reached out my hand and I heard some, and I, I'm pretty certain I, I had my hand in his. 
And I heard something behind me and I stopped and I turned and I looked behind me and sure enough, the horses and donkeys from the sanctuary where I had volunteered as my health declined. And I love it. <laughs> I just saw that. <laughs> the yeah, sorry. <laughs> and I never meet a donkey where I don't go up to the donkey. Literally in person, you can ask anybody. Anytime I see a donkey, even if I'm driving by, I stop. I go to the donkey, look them square in the eyes. I want you to know your people saved my life. <laughs> and I want you to know how important you are. And I want you to know if you don't remember the job that you have on this planet, and if it weren't for you, I don't know if the vibration of unconditional love could even sustain uh, on this planet. And I am so grateful. And you should see the donkey's response. It's just incredible. But, um, you know, we, you know, there's not enough time to tell my whole story really. And we yes. left out a big piece of my life and that was horses and rescuing horses and working with horses. And as I was on the opioids, it really wasn't safe for me to care for my own horses. So one was adopted out and one went to a sanctuary near my home. And for the remainder of um, time up until my near death experience, I went to visit my horse and, you know, the 40 or so donkeys, uh, 70 donkeys and 40 horses there. And I would um, brush a couple of horses and go home. And at first it was, you know, five or six days a week. And then it was four or five days a week. And then I wasn't really washing my hair every three or four days because mm -hmm. I was so exhausted, but I still wanted to go see my horse. And pretty soon I just couldn't go. And then within a couple of months, I had the, the near-death experience. So the donkeys, I turned around and it was clearly the animals from the sanctuary. And, and now I had been on so much medication, I wasn't aware of anything, any soul agreements or conversations while I was there. I had no conscious memory of it. And the horses are rearing up on their hind legs and the donkeys are braying, just braying and screaming. And I, I hear a human voice saying, don't go, don't go. Don't you remember? there's something important you have to do. And right away, I, I just whipped back around to, to Jesus and I said, sorry, Jesus, I'm going with them. And boom, I was back in my body. It's as if hearing that, don't you remember there's something important you have to do, triggered me. Right. And my soul somehow remembered, you know, through all of the trauma and all of the sadness and all of the Pain. unbelievable, unfortunate things. I thought about myself as I was declining and I was no longer used to, you know, I used to write grants. I volunteered. I advocated for children with special disabilities. I, um, you know, I, I did a lot of really, I think, admirable, fun, exciting, useful things in, in, in my life. And as I declined and I wasn't able to do those things, I began to think that I wasn't worth anything. I was useless. I I wasn't a productive member of society. And, and that was always something that was very important to me from, from the time I was young. Hmm. So when I came back into my body, it was, you know, the middle of the night around 1.30-ish, 1.45. And I was just screaming at the top of my lungs. I just died. I just died. I just died. I just, I just over and over, like 20 or 30 times I was screaming. My husband shot up out of bed. And um, he said, well, are you okay? Are, are you okay now? And I said, well, I think so. And he's like, can this wait until the morning? <laughs> <laughs> Love that. <laughs> can, the, can, can we talk about this in the morning? I'm, I'm tired. And, you know, I have to be honest. He, 
it's not fun caring for someone who is as distressed as, as I was, I'm sure. And I'm sure there were a few times I was a little overly emotional and he got used to that. So it was okay from his perspective to say, is it okay if we talk about it in the morning? So in the morning we did, and, and that's when he told me it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what it takes, I want you to live and you know, um, let's let's do whatever we can to make sure that that you can live longer and figure it out figure out what it is you have to do and i said to him i don't know why but i have to live there's something important for me to do and at the time i had no reason to think i could help anybody let alone myself so to say that really just didn't seem rational but again my husband loved me and supported me and he said if you think you have something important to do, let's make that happen, you know? So that's when I really started the spiritual journey. And that was really fun and exciting. Which you're continuing incredibly now as well. Right. Um, Well, I just Googled, you know, healing and, and psychic stuff started coming up. And so my husband, you know, I didn't drive a car at the time. I didn't have faculties to drive a car. So he took me to psychics and he took me to healers and um, about a year and a half and maybe $60,000 into that journey, I realized (laughs) other people healing me wasn't quite working. So that's when I started to really educate myself rather than pay somebody $500 an hour and lay on the table and say, okay, here I am, heal me. I'm ready to heal. Right. And I, because I had no exposure to it, I didn't, I never heard the word spirituality or self-help or alternative anything. And that's when I really started to go on a journey and I did every podcast, every webcast, every download. I went to weekend seminars. I went to two week seminars. I, I meditated. I, um, I studied um, quantum healing, vibrational healing, the heal technique. Um, so, I mean, every everything, possible, everything. And as I was experiencing it all, I was having these memories of doing it. And I was watching the healers and people as they were healing or talking, the energy move in their body. And I was remembering why it actually really doesn't work like that or what it what piece they're missing that would actually make the healing they're doing work and i was getting messages from the different aspects of me in all of these lives where i was a shaman i was a healer i was a, a you know a grandmother a wise woman i you know in i think the only um the only community i can't recall being a part of was druid but i actually think in the past Uh, I think it's nine years now, um, eight or nine years, I've recalled almost 2,000 lifetimes where I was some version of a healer or working in a spiritual capacity, um, whether it was, you know, Hindu or Jainism or Shintoism or Taoism or, um, you know, just a healer in Bali or a, a shaman in Peru or in what we would call indigenous uh, Native Americans, um, Siberian, uh, Mongolian, uh, you know, um, uh, pagan. Remarkable. And and have you written them all down? Your... No, no, I, I actually didn't. And I don't even know if it would have been possible. And there were times when I thought I should be writing all this down. This is pretty fascinating. 
And not the least of which were these lifetimes where I lived in Africa and I communicated with the animals and I just walked through the desert with wild animals all around me. And I've had several lives like that. Um, unfortunately, it made people afraid of me, so it didn't always turn out well for me, um, especially when the Europeans came to the African continent and decided they wanted to do away with all the, you know, the witch doctors, so to speak, right? right? So those people who they were fearful of and had some tremendous um, power, um, we were connected. Our heart wasn't shut down. We were connected to the causal realms and we were very uh, psychically powerful. Those, we were the ones that were always beheaded, hung, burned at the stake, um, you know, ridiculed, accused of crimes we didn't commit, drowned, thrown overboard, you know, run out of town on a rail, you know, whatever it is, uh, stretched on the rack. I've had all those experiences. Oh my gosh. And so <laughs> stretched on the rack, does it really stood out for me? <laughs> oh, let me tell you, let me tell you, you might've had one of those too. Maybe, but so you, can I ask, cause everyone experiences in a different way. Are you seeing this like a movie? If you, if you had to put it in words, seeing your lives in a movie or a visual? Yes. And in the movie, I would be shown by my soul what went wrong in the life. So for I can give you one example, very clear example that I saw recently. And it, because it's so fresh, I, I, can, I think I can communicate it more clearly. Mm-hmm. I was being initiated in Egypt as uh, a priestess. And I had been following my, my teacher. Um, and I was about to go through the ceremony and the, the priest and the priestess were next to me. And I was laying on the, what frankly looked a bit like a sarcophagus, um, in an underground or very dark chamber. And right at the moment the priest was going to initiate me, unfortunately some energy or another being came in and interfered with the ceremony and went like right into my third eye. And so there was an, an interference there. And a lot of people um, in this life now struggle to wake up, struggle to stand in their power, struggle to step forward with their story or their gifts and abilities because of these types of experiences in the past. So as I was viewing that life, it was being narrated for me by my soul. This is what happened. This, um, so knowing about the past lives is not just purely informational and it's fun and entertaining. And, and we could talk for hours and hours about how my journey progressed and what I realized was important and, and what wasn't important in the beginning, I would just listen as if it seemed as if it was entertaining. I didn't know why they were telling me these things. And until I went to work with the Aboriginal woman in Australia, I didn't know there was actually a reason to know and understand what happened in your past lives but she explained it to me. So as I was viewing the Egyptian life, my soul was explaining what had happened to the priest and how he was interfered with so that I was enabled to forgive the priest and trust spiritual ceremony. And it's really interesting because there have been many different healing modalities and religious philosophies that are so beautiful that involves ceremony, whether it's something as simple as full moon or solstice or, you know, honoring the earth, you know, innocent things. But in so many past lives, 
the ceremonies were interfered with or I as a healer was interfered with that I had an absolute distrust for a lot that was going on. And so having my soul come and show me this is what happened, this is what went wrong, you can forgive this person, you can let this go, you don't have to be mad at the creator anymore. And it was very literal and I was actually shown how the energy was moving and processing and what was good about it and what wasn't good about it. And being walked through all these varied, quite frankly today, competing healing modalities or perspectives, I understand now, at least for me, that each and every one of them has beautiful components, uh, you know, threads of information that are quite helpful on a journey to self-awareness and, um, and sovereignty and standing in our power. What I found is that, and this is true for me and very true for me, and I'm very passionate about this. What I found is we have to take responsibility for ourselves and our actions as healers and what the definition of healing means. And as I was shown the many, many, many past lives where I was a healer, I was shown how there comes a time where we are actually imposing on someone's free will if we heal them and they don't understand what we're doing or they haven't specifically asked for it or they don't really even realize they need it. Mm -hmm. um, there, I don't think that I recall any shamanic teaching that I've experienced and I've done a, a, probably between 16 and 17,000 hours of studying, you know, traveling, learning, attending, etc., where one shamanic perspective is the same as another. The different cultures and their ancestral lineage is, although sometimes overlapping, oftentimes vastly different because that information, as we know now, is coming from different planets. It's coming from different places in, in not only the galaxy, but the universe. And so I was shown when we are actually imposing on others and when we are actually helping to teach others. And so I have adopted uh, a definition of healing as a healer is someone who helps you remember that you are your own best healer. Now on my journey, I could not, I would not be where I am today if a lot of really incredible, beautiful, amazing, wonderful, gifted, thoughtful, loving people hadn't helped me to mirror or identify things within myself that I needed to clear, heal, or release. But the key is not to say, honey, I know what's wrong with you. Just sit back and let me drive the bus. Mm. That's just not what we're meant to do. What we're meant to do from my perspective and based on all that I have shown and the many mistakes I made, which often in my experience have resulted in karmic consequence in interfering with the free will of another is to say, I see this or I sense this or I feel this. First of all, did the person ask your opinion? Did the person ask you for help? That is very good point. One, right. We don't just walk up to people and start saying things, you know, Oh, Hey, um, 
I see something, I see something on your shoulder or what have you. But when they ask uh, to, to share with them what you're sensing in a way that causes them to reflect and identify or resonate or not. And if they're not, but they want to know and they're a seeker and they're wanting to heal, then you can ask for more information and give more information. Well, I see that maybe you were six years old and you were at a birthday party or maybe you were at a 4th of July picnic or do you recall, oh yes, now I understand. So what is the energetic consequence of that interaction between you and your father or you and your brother or you and your friend where there was some misunderstanding or hurt feelings and how has that manifested in a series or system of beliefs that is holding you back now in your life? And now that you know that exists, are you willing to let that go? And sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no. Especially with really powerful, incredible people, I have had people say to me, but what will I be if I let that go? Is that what gives me my power? Or I think that these negative emotions are actually helpful for me. And that is resistance in most cases. Or it's a sure sign that the soul's path or journey isn't to heal in that moment in this life and, you know, not to push. And what I learned more than anything is not to push, not to assume, always to ask. And my philosophy with respect to healing is very similar to my philosophy with respect to horsemanship. And that is both horses and people learn a lot about one another in the pause, in the quiet moments of connection where we think about what just happened and we share our truth and we can truly, and I'm not misusing the word, authentically come face to face with one another and say, I am willing to give this to you. That to me has helped me really move forward and be very successful on, on my journey as a healer, which is something I never wanted, I never asked for. People kept telling me, you're a healer, you're bringing the most incredible information. Um, a lot of people, after they have their NDEs, their opening to the other side is quite wide, and we're downloading a lot of information, and yes. that was certainly the case with me. And I have, if not a very consistent almost instantaneous connection to the causal realms. If I need information, it's there. However that soul wants to bring it forward to me, is it feelings, is it emotion, is it pain, is it seeing, is it knowing, is it hearing, is it sensing? Whatever that soul's priority is that's in front of me that's asking me for help, I step aside and I listen and I pause and I drop into my heart all of the things that I learned all of the ways that I experienced healing that were not done that way. All of the ways in which people came to me and said, you're wrong, the way you're speaking is wrong, what you're doing is wrong, you can't listen to those other people, I'm right, my modality is right, my modality is superior. All of the ways in which I was made to feel bad, wrong, less than, not good enough, um, uh, judged if I sought out other information, I had a very long list of how not to be a healer, how not to interact with other people, how not to encourage and validate other people. And I learned through 
being wounded myself. And NDEers talk a lot about gratitude and being gratitude and being gratitude for the journey and being gratitude for the suffering that brings us to where we are. And all of those experiences, which, you know, my human mind puts in the negative column, were the greatest teaching tools for me because I was able to say, boy, if I'm ever a healer or if I ever have the opportunity to speak with someone like this, I will not say it like that. And I learned very quickly that the common threads in all of the philosophies, in all of the religions, in all of the healing modalities were self-awareness, forgiveness, love, compassion, and so much work today. And I, I will say that. So much of this work today, you never once hear the word heart or love or going inside. People encourage us to look outside ourselves for the answers. We are encouraged to pay money hand over fist to find out what the solution is, what the perfect answer is, what the quick fix is. And I can tell you, I spent a lot of money trying to do that and the answers aren't there. The answers aren't, they don't come like that. Now, yes, it is rare that someone hasn't really had a very traumatized life. They go to a Reiki healer, the little pain they had in their elbow is gone and it never comes back. Yes, there are those moments. I understand that. But when we are constantly in, a, in the throes of unworthiness and self-doubt and looking for someone else to be the answer, bring the answer, that is not true healing. And even if someone does manage to help dislodge a pattern, it will come back because it wasn't our truth. It wasn't our idea. We weren't standing in our power in releasing it. And we hadn't yet learned the lesson that our soul intended. And I think that, to be fair, I think that is one of my greatest strengths in working with people. And if you do read any of the testimonials on my website, um, it's not, oh, you know, Ginny magically, you know, changed my life in a day. It's kindness, compassion. Yes, you know, lives are changed. Yes, behavior patterns are changed. But, but it's not just the, the one little thing, the pain in my elbow went away. It's my entire perspective has changed. You know, I trust myself now. I, does that make sense? It is. It's so beautiful. And everything you've said absolutely resonates. And it's so true as a healer, you know, yes. I mean, my, me, myself, but people spend thousands and thousands on healers. And even though they have snippets of help and maybe offer some comfort, the true healer is ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. You said that and so eloquently and so amazingly. So... <laughs> Well, I, I believe so much in it. And sadly, I've paid a lot of money to learn this lesson. I've, um, when well, maybe, sorry to interject, but maybe you needed to learn that lesson. So maybe that money was intended. <laughs> but over and over, really? <laughs> I say well, to well, myself. I'm a slow learner. I don't know about you. <laughs> uh, I think I must have been the slowest learner <laughs> because... I would find someone that I really resonated with and I thought was amazing. And, oh my gosh, I'm going to go to this person's class and it costs $6,000. Yeah. And I get there and they look at me and they realize 
that what I am bringing to the class is beyond what the class is being taught, and they have no choice but to degrade me. They have no choice but to find something about me they don't like. They have no choice but to attempt to insult me and drive me away. But what did the little wounded Ginny do? Well, if I'm just good enough, if I'm just kind enough, if I just show her how true and accurate the information I bring forward is, maybe she'll believe in me and validate me. And so we all have our own stuff and we're all on a journey. And some of us aren't getting it right in this life. No matter how famous, no matter how well-respected, you know, it, there are a lot of people who are really, science is their religion or a specific religion is their religion. And when you are only in a certain box or a certain paradigm, that comes with chords. That comes with its own set of limitation. And until, thank goodness, my soul or the person's soul allowed me to see through that little, look like a little country road mailbox, a little white mailbox with the red oh, flag that goes up, okay. you know? When I saw that door come down and I saw what was inside, I'm like, oh, no wonder she doesn't like me. So what I found is not that we should always believe everybody, every psychic or medium we go to and we say, why does this person not like me? And, and they, uh, the standard answer is it's not you, it's them. Because that's yeah. not true. It's actually us too. Mm -hmm. There's something in us. There's something that resonates. There's a deep, albeit subtle residue of, of not fitting in, not belonging that causes these reactions and, and, and personal um, fallout or, or dysfunction, whatever we might want to call it. But for those who just want to always give you the answer that you want to hear, it's not you, it's them, it's not you, it's them, it's not, you don't pay money for that. What you really want is to hear the difficult answer. It is you and here's what it is. It is you and here's why. And it's not that we've done anything wrong. It's that we were born on planet Earth and people are stressed out and our parents were abused too. And that's why they abused us. And if we can look at it from that perspective, there is no shame in healing because healing does require us to find the inner, the wounded child, to look at the shadow, but not in a judgmental, oh, boy, how we screwed up way, in a, wow, thank gosh, every one of these events is an opportunity for healing. So on my journey, I really, I did not want to be a healer. And all of these healers that I was working with were asking me to help them. So I had all these clients that were healers. <laughs> and I thought, well, I, I guess I'm a healer's healer. And <laughs> because a lot of the people that I work with are fabulous and they know it or fabulous and they don't. And I feel like the people whose lives I touch are going to go and in turn touch tens of thousands of people's lives. Right. But they kept telling me that I was a healer and I said, Oh no, I haven't done this 30 years like you. I haven't done this 20 years like you. I'm not certificated in 15 things, you know, I but don't you meditate really all day. Yeah. But <laughs> But you have information and the way that you deliver it is in such a loving way, non-judgmental, non-accusatory yes. way. You, it's really important for you to work with people. So what I did was I very reluctantly said, okay, but I, I'm not going to really charge anybody any money because 
you know, I kind of felt like a fraud, you know, I just died and I came back and now I know this stuff. I didn't work for it. You know, I love that. I just died and I came back. But <laughs> <laughs> So eventually I, I broke down and I said, okay, I will offer sessions, but I'm only going to charge $20. If somebody has $20, well, within three months, I had clients in Switzerland, Belgium, England, Panama, Ecuador, um, Mexico, Hawaii, Canada, and all across the U.S. And, and I think maybe even the Middle East. Um, yeah. And I was on the phone. All, I, I was in it. Now, please know this was probably a little out of balance, but I didn't get out of balance myself, but for my life and my family and my husband, it was out of balance. Mm -hmm. But I was on the phone sometimes eight or 10 hours a day. Wow. And if I wasn't with a client, I was with a friend telling my friend everything that happened, <laughs> everything that I learned, everything that I was shown, not sharing private information about people, but what I was shown and what I was learning and in all of these experiences with people, I was learning so much. I was being shown and I had no predisposition. I wasn't married to anything. I didn't prefer anything. I didn't believe anything. So spirit would just show me, my soul would just show me whatever that person needed. And in the language that they spoke, if they spoke in emotions, I would be able to share their emotion. If they spoke in color, like color was meaningful to them, I would share something metaphoric having to do with color. If they had a more feeling in the body resonating with a memory that was trapped somewhere in the body, that's what I would share. But it was never consistent. I never did the same healing twice. I never, I don't even think I've say, said the same thing twice to people, which is is so incredibly authentic and unique to each individual person to each individual person and there have been things that have just blown my mind that there is no way i could have come up with or in or your even, humanness i or i couldn't have even written a book that you know been that creative to come up with you know so um then what happened was as I was working with these people and I began working out of a healing center and um, another state and had a lot of clients that way. I get a lot of former military um, and a lot of people with trauma, a lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. But what happened was when I was working with the people, all of a sudden I would say, um, do you have a cat? Because there's a little white kitten in your energy field, you know, or, um, do you, a woman, I think in Minnesota, actually, I was working with her on the telephone, but I was in Minnesota and I said to her, do you own a horse? Because your horse is really upset and wants to talk to you. And she said, yes, I, I do have a horse and I'm actually, I'm very upset with my horse. So it's really good that he's coming through. And after a while, it started to get a little bothersome to me. So I, I went to, well, I meditated a lot and I had hypnotic regression and I asked what is up with all these animals, you know, bothering me and interfering in my sessions, you know? Yeah. And, it, and I had this vision of the horse herd coming forward to me and they basically said, don't you remember? You're supposed to be helping us. Oh. You're supposed to be working with us. And I said, no, I don't remember. <laughs> and so that's when I did a lot of hypnotic regression to remember because I didn't remember the details of the near-death experience the next morning. I mean, I just went on a journey. I didn't stop and think about 
I mean, I told people, yeah, I saw Jesus, you know, but I didn't, I didn't think about anything else. I just didn't want to die. And I had to get myself off of drugs. So when the animals came and said, don't you remember, you're supposed to be helping us. I said, no, I don't remember, (laughs) but it became quite clear. And, um, the interesting thing is I really pushed the envelope. I really pushed the boundaries of traditional, um, foundational animal communication that is taught by people who sort of made it up 20 or 30 years ago and they made it up within their religious paradigm and their religious belief system and that is largely what's taught in in the world is a certain way of communicating with animals which is basically remote viewing the thoughts of the animal in a series of pictures and then interpreting through your life experience what the picture means to you and sharing that so i find that to be incredibly invasive to an animal especially animals who have been traumatized because they don't want to hear their story again they don't want to have those visions again they don't want you to talk about it again unless they're ready and so what what is the beautiful thing for me is i went on the journey i healed myself i did refuse for a long time to call myself a healer at all or do anything because I said, no, I'm traumatized. I was abused when I was a kid. I was raped. I was this. I had, you know, a horrible first husband, you know, pardon me. He's a lovely man. I had a horrible first marriage. I can, I can can say that with, um, he was a good teacher. The marriage wasn't good, but the man is a nice, he's a very nice. (laughs) Um, and by the way, he's the father of my children. Um, so, um, going on that journey and then having all the experiences and and sort of developing my identity of who i am and how i work and how i feel and getting comfortable with it and then transitioning to the animals the animals were right away able to tell me you know all these things people say about us just aren't true look at the truth let us show you what the truth is well now you've known me for about an hour and 10 minutes now. So what do you think I did next? Oh my gosh, this is a trick question. I went to school. Oh, okay. (laughs) I had to go back to school to learn how to communicate with animals because, you know, remember, I had a very linear mind and very left-brained, right? And so I had to go to school and I had to learn how to communicate with animals and I had to make sure someone validated me because I didn't want to be a fraud and I wanted a certificate. I needed the certificate. (laughs) (laughs) So you I bet you would have guessed that if I let it go for so and I went and you know, some of it was really nice, but it's all of these paradigms, they're, they're limiting boxes. They're limiting boxes. And so I would learn something and then they would say, would you please stop reading the books because you really need to um, put the book down. The more you read, the further you go away from us. Those of us who rescue, we are doing so for a reason. We, you know, those of us with deep, deep compassion, we are that way for a reason. And when we are rescuing abused, traumatized animals, it is a part of our path to healing as well, most of the time. And so, yes, people's lives are changed as well. Absolutely. Absolutely beautiful. I'm just 
trying to digest everything that you know this whole interview's been and i've got i've got so much food for thought to think about but Ginny, i have to say thank you just for sharing so honestly and openly and so incredibly beautifully your you know journey of pain and joy and i guess your journey of freedom really mm. and your Absolutely. own personal healing and i just love that you're an advocate that um we are our own healers Absolutely. and i love that you're an advocate that almost to trust yourself and you can say you know your truth is you you know sharing your truth and this is what you believe and mm. i think it's a really important message as well to the to the world to trust yourself right now i have to say in all fairness i wouldn't have trusted me in the beginning <laughs> and I'm, <laughs> I'm fond of quoting and i don't know who can be credited for this quote but if you don't know where you're going any road will do and that's sort of how I felt I was going on my journey. I was sort of fumbling, fumbling, fumbling. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel that I had a strong sense of discernment or guidance. But now in hindsight, I see that I did. So even when we believe that we can't trust ourselves, there is something greater at work. Even if we can't feel it, see it, know it, embody it, it's there. It's absolutely there. Beautiful. Ginny, thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. We'll probably have to have another episode. I've got so much to discuss with you, but I really, really thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening and please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate.